finally, from so little sleeping and so much reading, his brain dried up, and he went completely out of his mind. This is Dried Up Brain, and I'm Nate. And I'm Andrea. This is a podcast where we uh, read things, we talk about them. Andrea's my mom, she's also a librarian, and uh, I'm a, I write things, they don't, people don't uh, necessarily publish them. But I do write them, uh, so that might explain some of my perspective. Who's to say? Uh, so, this for this episode, uh, we read uh, some science fiction. We blast off into the star pit and some classic science fiction because this we read the Star Pit by Samuel Delaney from originally published in the February 1967 issue of Worlds of Tomorrow, and we actually read. That a PDF copy of the actual magazine, which had the illustrations in it by Jack Gahan. Okay. Yeah. So it was almost, it was really that sort of immersion into like reading pulp fiction. Yeah. I think uh, I would recommend uh, that if you want to look around, you can find pretty easily find scans of a lot of classic science fiction magazines. And they're really interesting to read and they're really interesting as like, cultural artifacts yeah because i can't you get the kind of full experience of like something published at the time of when it's published but you also see the context that it's in because like this is in this magazine it's got these illustrations which i don't think are reproduced in any later published version of it uh but it's also like this story ends and immediately the next page is like an essay about psychology and science fiction and so now you sort of, like, don't really get... I mean, if you just read, like, the complete collected stories of insert sci-fi writer here, you don't really get the feel that, like, these were sandwiched in between, like, fan essays and things that would be scholarly essays that maybe had to be published in these sci-fi magazines because we didn't really have the academic culture uh, to support that sort of thing at the time. And it really gives you, like, a feel for the sci-fi community as it existed then. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of like a time capsule mm-hmm. of, you know, it It makes me think about, like, when it was, when, like, Sherlock Holmes was being published in the newspaper and how excited people would get, or the serialization, like, Charles Dickens, where you would get your magazine and you would just read that piece and you were kind of, like, immersed in the, like, publishing, you know, it was relevant at the time that it was happening. Mm-hmm. So let's talk a little bit about Samuel R. Delaney. You want to give like a little bio about him? Sure. I mean, he is a uh, a new wave. He's often characterized as a new wave uh, sci-fi writer. Uh, you know, I got obviously from the the date I gave you for the publication of the Star Pit. He's writing in the sixties and seventies. His most famous work is probably Dahlgren. Uh, but I think the thing that people talk about the most now maybe is his memoir. Uh, the motion of light and water, because Delaney was a bit of an what outlier at the time. He was a science fiction writer who happened to be both black and gay. Yeah, and I which think is a perspective you don't even see a lot now, but especially not back then. I think also he was an outlier in that some of the themes that he wrote about where he brought sort of societal issues into science fiction which you see more often now Mm -hmm. so he was kind of like an early 
you know, innovator in that. I mean, he talked a lot about like race, like you said, race issues, sexuality, uh, memory and perception. He was very concerned about sort of the cultural record that was being kept. And I think he, um, he was sort of avant-garde. He was an early writer who talked openly about sexual orientation, especially in science fiction, where it seems like at that time, a lot of the science fiction writers were heterosexual males and the main marketing that they were doing was to men. So I think that was interesting that he kind of took some of those more personal, sensitive societal issues and brought them into his science fiction. I think you really see that when we start talking about the plot of Star Pit. Sure, yeah. Um, It's interesting to note, too, he's also a Hugo and a Nebula Award winner. So he's an award-winning writer. He was um, recognized for the work that he was doing at the time that he was doing it. But I think, like, we always talk about the legacy. I think his legacy moving on is going to be about his open and transparent dialogue about his own life, which I think you see a lot of in the stories. Yeah, I mean, and also, in addition, if we're talking about those awards, in addition to winning those sort of internal sci-fi community awards, he is also a uh, Stonewall Book Award uh, yeah. recipient. and I think I think that's relevant. I mean, because when you look at literature and you try, especially like young adults who are questioning, when they're looking at literature to find something that they can relate to, it's important that there's a body of work, not just a, a quality body of work that doesn't pander to different issues, but someone who's authentic and who's going through the same experiences and writes openly and honestly about those things can really be a help to people who are looking for role models. Yeah, yeah. And I think he really does a good job. So you mentioned the Star Pit was in the February 1967 World of Tomorrow, and it's also in one of his short stories, Collections. I believe he actually only has the one collection. Yes. Uh, but yeah, it's 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 uh, it's there. There was a radio production of it, which I listened to a little bit of, that's on the internet. So, uh, that's really just him, it's essentially just an audiobook. It's him reading the story while somebody plays a, like an atonal atonal flute solo in the background and you can find it at sffaudio.com and it's it's i think it's from 1968 and it was a dramatization that was meant for public radio but i wanted to briefly go back to jack gahan he is also a hugo award winner Mm -hmm. and he's one of the iconic science fiction artists and he's sort of well known for his depiction of spaceships and space um, landscapes. He was also well known for in 1965. Ace published the sort of bootleg paperbacks of the Lord of the Rings series, and he did the covers of them. And oh, it, I have one of those. Yeah, and it became like a huge like copyright lawsuit because Ace claimed that European copyright didn't apply to the United States. And they smuggled out a copy of the manuscripts of the Lord of the Rings and reprinted them. But there were so many errors and so many like typos and things like that because they wanted to rush it out before the British editions were imported to the United States. But those covers are sort of iconic artwork that you see a lot of times on the internet that sort of describes the Lord of the Rings paperbacks. Yeah, they're like very... 
uh, they like remind me of old D and D books. They're like yeah. these like they're all. I think all three of them. I have a the one that I have is Return of the King, but they're all like um, like a bright primary color background with like a like big drawing of one of the characters right. in the foreground. It sort of sets the style for, like, cover art for, like, science fiction and fantasy in the 1960s. And he does he does a lot of, like, magazine art, and he does a lot of illustrations. But an interesting thing about him is he also was well-known for doing fan art. So he was a paid illustrator, but he loved the stories so much that he would illustrate them on his own and then share them with other fans at conferences and things like that. So he won both Hugo Awards for being a paid illustrator and also awards for his fan work that he did. So he was a pretty interesting illustrator. So. That's cool. Yeah, I thought it was interesting. All right, so let's start talking about the Star Pit. You want to give us a little... Sure, I guess. So, to fair warning, with the way that this book is structured, it's kind of the same thing I almost said about... Um, it's almost the same thing I said about Dark Harvest, where a lot of the structure of this book is about slowly parceling out information on how this world works as it is, like, uh, given to us through our main character's perspective. So, like, I'm just going to tell you everything. If you want to have that experience of being sort of, like, lost and confused as you slowly piece together what's going on in this story, then I recommend going to read it. But what basically is happening here is our protagonist and narrator is this man named Vime, who is a starship mechanic and an alcoholic. And he's got a lot of, like, internalized and unexamined, almost to the point of unacknowledged rage. And when the story opens, he's part of this thing called a procreation group or a proke group, which are these, like, polyamorous communes where adults are grouped together and sort of married as a group with the goal being that they will have a bunch of different children, lots of different genetic diversity to help populate the universe. Because the story is set in the future where mankind is expanded out into space and there are like space colonies and, you know, we've terraformed all these different worlds and now they need more people to populate them and to like fly spaceships and trade and stuff. And... Vime splits his time living with the procreation group and then traveling out to take these mechanics jobs at various spaceports, and then he comes back with the money. The uh, children at the procreation group have constructed this thing called an ecologarium or an ecologarium, which is like a big, basically a big terrarium that's located on the beach outside of their home that has all these strange alien animals in it. And the children are get very excited to watch it and to observe the life cycles of all these creatures. And then one day, Vime has a particularly disastrous outing to get a job that just like goes horribly for him. The job he wants isn't open when he gets there, and he has to work just to get a ticket back, and he almost gets hit by another spaceship and yelled at by the guy who he's hitched a ride with. And he comes home and immediately goes to the bar and gets drunk and angry. And then he's staring out into the uh, the middle distance and finally loses it and destroys the ecologarium. Oh, and then b- b- before that, there's a little vignette where we see 
that one of these like sloth-like creatures with cup-like hands is released from the Ecologarium and the UV radiation from the sun uh, drives it mad and feral and then kills it. And then after he smashes the Ecologarium, uh, seemingly the sloths that were in it just disappear. Yeah, I think we should note that the star pit is the farthest part of the universe that humans can go to. And it's almost like a way station where a lot of people end up who can't go any further in the universe. And they're kind of like aimless people and it ends up sort of being like this truck stop almost, but in outer space where it like sort of collects a lot of like disenfranchised people who are sort of unhappy with their lives and they end up doing these menial jobs to support the space travel industry. Yeah, after he destroys the Ecologarium, Vime sort of fails out of the procreation group and goes back to traveling and working on his own. He eventually gets clean, a war breaks out, and everyone at the procreation group dies, and Vime ends up working at his own sort of small mechanics shop on the star pit, which is sort of like a artificial... Like a partial, artificial part of a planet that's located at this point. Where if anybody travels, any normal human travels further than the star pit or whatever, or, f- or far enough away from the star pit, they... Go uh, insane. They, yeah, they, the psychic pressure becomes too much and they lose their minds and then eventually they die. But there are certain people who have a psychological profile that allows them to travel beyond the normal human limit and they're called golden. And while... Vime is working at the star pit. He befriends these two young men named Sandy and Ratlet. And Sandy's kind of like a sad sack who's basically in the same situation Vime was in when he was younger. Who's like traveling back and forth between his procreation group and the star pit doing these jobs. And he's kind of on the outs with the other members of the star pit. And then Ratlet is a child prodigy who has been like living a hard... Life as like a space sailor since he was a child, and at 13 he writes uh, a memoir that becomes really successful, and now he's just kind of this like hustler on the star pit, but he occasionally works for Vime. And I think it's interesting that it should be noted that Vime, who, even though he is himself an outcast, he spends a lot of his time helping these strange stragglers that show up on the star pit. Yeah, well, the thing that becomes clear as the story goes on is that Vime has a lot of guilt about what happened with his procreation group, and specifically with his son, Anthony, who is the one we see the most of in that sort of opening sequence before he smashes the Ecologarium. And uh, sort of a couple of things happen all around the same time. One is this Golden returns from an uh, this expedition where a bunch of them got sick, and he's sort of wandering around the star pits, like almost like he's drunk. And Ratlet and Vime find him and take him to this girl named Allegra, who is a psychic who was born with an addiction to a psychedelic and euphoric drug who projects her emotions out into other people's heads. And she's like a healer and a psychiatrist. And Ratlet is like in love with her. And they take the golden to her and drop him off. And then it turns out that he recognizes in Allegra that she's golden. And Ratlet hates goldens because he doesn't like... Their existence implies that he's trapped in the universe. And he doesn't like that. 
and Allegra and the Golden make this plan to run away together, and then it turns out that... At first, it seems like Ratlitch just, out of spite, steals Allegra's golden belt. That's, like, the thing that identifies that you're a golden, and leaves with the, the sick golden in the ship, in this ship. And then later, it turns out that she was running out of medicine and pregnant and was probably going to die anyway, and that's why he took the belt. At the same time that this is happening, uh, this golden brings a ship to Vime's shop, and Vime and Sandy are working on it, and then he gets in a fight with another Golden and dies. And then uh, the the Golden that killed him gives Sandy the ship, and then Sandy gives the ship to Vime, and Vime gives it to Ratlet, and Ratlet gives it to the Golden, and they escape. And then Sandy gets a letter from his procreation group breaking up with him, and tries to kill himself with a giant robot hand that Vime has in his garage... Uh, and Vime stops him from doing this. And then he introduces Vime to An- Androcles, his, like, brother-in-law, who is a go- young golden who's training to be a roboy engineer, which I guess are, like, robots that you people are remote-controlled. And he sends him to Vime to get a job, and Vime, like, connects with him immediately and sees like, a reflection of Antony in him. And he shows Vime a tiny ecolugarium of microscopic creatures that he wears around his neck. And then he gives it to Vime after they get in a fight, and he says that he gives this speech about how, like, Goldens are also trapped, and it's unfair what, like, non-Golden people do to them, and they're trapping them. And this causes Vime to have a relapse, and he gets drunk... And then he goes to his friend Poloski's mechanic shop and tries to kill, tries to destroy the Ecolegarium with her robot arm. And then she talks him down. And then it turns out Androcles is there, and him and Vime have a conversation where Androcles reveals that there are parallel universes, and the Golden can't travel to them, and that's why they feel trapped. But what can travel to them are these like biological drones, which turn out to be the sloth creatures. That were in the Ecolegarium. And the reason they disappeared when he destroyed it was because they transported into another universe. And this gives Vime, like, some sort of perspective. And he has, like, a moment of sort of grace and ease. But then the story ends and it's unclear exactly what's going to happen to him. There's a lot to unpack in that story. Yeah. Yes, there is. I think um, the only thing I would add is that I think the reason why Vime gives this spaceship away is because he's under the assumption that the Goldens are going to take Allegra with him. That, but she ends up getting conned out of all of it. Yeah. Well, no, he gives the spaceship to Ratlet so that Ratlet can give it to the Golden so the Golden will leave because Ratlet is jealous of the relationship Allegra has with the Golden. And then it turns out, he later on he learns about the thing with her, that she's going to leave with him. Which makes Ratlet even more angry. Yeah. He gives it to Ratlet because he thinks he's helping Ratlet out. Delaney wrote this story when he was in his 20s. That makes sense. And then it sort of deals with his feelings of being disenfranchised, which is a very common theme in science fiction. So let's talk about some of the themes that are going on. Well, I mean, it kind of posits this universe where the everything is just a series of nested, shitty small towns that you'll never escape before you die. 
Yeah, and I think that, I mean, that's what I got. I felt like the story was about, like, alienation and sort of discrimination and then sort of this um, way that society keeps people from achieving the dreams and goals that they want. And I think that's, like, the whole feeling of, like, exclusion. But it's interesting because each of the characters feel excluded in a different way. And there's one point where Vine, you know, like Vine wants to go to space, but he's not a golden. So he's only gone as far as he can go. And a lot of the characters want to go someplace else, but they're, they can't. They're not allowed or they don't have the mechanism or what's happening in society that's happening to them won't allow them to move on. And I think that was like what I was thinking was really interesting about the Allegra character is if she's trapped because she's a drug addict and a psychic and the way that her drug addiction manifests where she's able to make these sort of um illusional states that other people can interact with yeah and then you know she's a healer and she's an addict and i feel like it's kind of like even though it's the 1960s i feel like it's kind of like projecting and almost like sort of not inventing, but sort of making a comment about what's going to happen in the future with these sort of large urban drug addicted populations and things like that. Like it happened in the 80s and how like society creates this pressure that creates this problem. And then the problem becomes so large that it becomes part of the culture. And it's like this terrible cycle that no one can break out of. Yeah. I mean, I think the the whole golden thing is a really interesting, like, um, metaphor for privilege, where it's, like, literally, like, it's this idea where, you know, some people, because of the circumstances of their birth, are just limited in how far they're ever going to get, and this makes that, like, really literal, where it's, like, you literally can only go this far because you were born with this kind of brain, or you're going to die, and the golden are, like, these certain lucky people that happen to be born... With the ability to transcend that, and they're literally called golden. And then the revelation at the end is, like, they still feel just as trapped as anybody else. Because, like, the universe is not set up to make us feel free and validated. I think what's interesting about this story and about Delaney's work is that he takes this sort of kind of upbeat concept that's all in science fiction about this ragtag group of, like space misfits Mm -hmm. and kind of flips it to like with a new lens to make you look at like they're not like a happy-go-lucky band of ragtag misfits working on a space station they're like desperate repressed people who are struggling every day i mean they're i mean he's talking about issues you know like gender identity there's a character in there that he that Vime didn't know was a woman because I guess the, the her representation to him was like non-binary. And at the end, when he goes to Prosecchi's um, garage and he talks to her, she invites him to join this procreation group. And he's kind of like, why would I want to do that? And she's like, he's like, because I'm a woman. And he was kind of like mystified. You know, that, I, don't, I don't necessarily know if it was that he didn't know that she was a woman or he just didn't think about it. I mean, she's she's basically like, you know, because she presents him this, like, argument like, hey, have you ever thought about, like, love and how that exists? And Vime's like, no, I'm too depressed. 
I don't understand what love is. I'm angry all the time. I have to leave. But I think it's like, I mean, I think it's interesting that he's talking about, like, gender constructs. There's another part, too, where Sandy is talking about the procreation group. And it's a really sad moment, like, when he gets that letter and he starts reading it. And then it's kind of like, we don't want you in the group. We don't want you to come back. And then it's signed. And he's kind of like, you realize that, like, what he got from the procreation group wasn't just procreation, but, like, a a real human attachment to another person. Mm -hmm. And that person just rejected him in, like, a really harsh way. Yeah, yeah. And then that that person, uh, Joey, it's, like, the main person from the procreation group that he's connected to. Reconnects with him just to get him to give his brother a job. And Sandy's, like, excited about that because he's just excited to be, like, needed. But he's being used. But I think that's it. I mean, he, like, the relationship connection that he wants, he's so desperate to make that he's willing to be used to maintain that connection. So I I think it's, like, I, I... I like that because I feel like that's highly relatable that like there are all these different people and they're pushed together into like a group but they have so many different personalities and nuances and they're all grappling with the same theme but in different ways. I mean I think that makes it more complex than just you know a sci-fi adventure story. Sure, sure. But I think it's like it's also I think about Entitlement, Because, like, the Goldens, even though... Because just by a luck of genetic draw, they have an ability to achieve more. Mm-hmm. They don't necessarily work harder. They're not necessarily special. They just... There's something in their brain that makes them different from the, me- the rest of the mass of society. And they have this sort of a sense of entitlement. I mean, they walk around, like, in this poor, like desperate way station with solid gold belts on and they're walking around and they're like you know they're kind of like out of touch of reality and they just assume that nothing's going to happen to them because they feel like they're like special and different and they should get special treatment for that well we find out with when androcles has this conversation with vine towards the end that basically the thing that makes a golden a golden is they're psychopaths and which then, it, like, the whole thing becomes, like, a really nice satire of, like, uh, capitalism where it's like, yeah, how do you get ahead in capitalism? You be a fucking psychopath. Like, there's all those statistics about, like, yeah, CEOs and psychos have, like, they share a lot of personality traits. And it's like, yeah, so in order to get past everyone and exist, like, I think there's the idea that maybe Delaney's getting at with that is that in or- the thing that people need is like connection and community that's like what vime turns out that he needs when he starts and that's why he keeps doing stuff like helping ratlet and sandy and then helping this kid that comes along but if you don't feel the need for that if you can't and won't connect with people then you can travel as far as you want in the universe because it's not going to bother you when you're isolated out in space and the thing that ultimately breaks the golden is just the revelation that there's some place they can't go yeah, and I think that kind of gives them that maybe it should give them an understanding of what it's like for the rest of the people, but it really doesn't seem to. No, and if we assume that the golden are metaphors for like rich social climbing ghouls, then the idea that when they do have this moment of something that should humble them, it just makes them angrier 
at the people that were below them to begin with, like, that rings really true. I think it's very relevant. But also, I think, instead of just always being sympathetic to Veeam, I think we should also note that a lot of the decisions that he makes, they're self-destructive decisions that he's actively making. So it's not just society doing things to him. He's also making bad choices, and he's becoming angry at society for the choices that he's making. So it's sort of like this self-driving machine where he's making bad decisions. And, I mean, he pretty much self-destructs that procreation group, even though there wasn't any reason to do some of the things that he does. Yeah. Like, busting down that egalarium doesn't really help. In fact, it just hurt the other people who were in his family. Well, we find out that that is, uh, like, a recurring pattern of behavior for him. Yeah. Because he gets the miniature ecolegarium from Androcles and tries to destroy it. And then when he's, before that, when he's getting drunk, there's this really great sequence where he's in a, uh, in this bar, and he's trying to have this conversation with this sailor who doesn't really hear what he's saying. And he tells him that when he was a kid, he had an ant farm, and he wanted to go watch the ships depart. And... His mother wouldn't let him, and he got angry, and he smashed the ant farm. And so there's, there's this thing where, like, uh, Vine keeps destroying the world. Like, he keeps, like, realizing the limits of his abilities and of his position in life, and then in his rage, he destroys a facsimile of the world. Like, Vime just wants to destroy the universe, and he can't, so he keeps doing it in miniature. Yeah, and I think it's sort of like if the Ecolarium is this sort of self-contained world that's a comment on, like, the trappings of society, that that is a natural, like, area for him to focus his anger. Because he's he's an angry man. That's pretty much his gist of, like, his personality. You know, he's gruff and angry and mad, and... He's always looking for a fight and, like, conflict. And I think that, like, even though he's trying to help people and he's involved in, like, his community and helping the people that live in it, he's kind of like, he's like a time bomb. He's just about to go off. Or, like, they, none of the people know what's going to set him off. But obviously it's these little sort of egalariums that people keep showing up with. Yeah. Like, if you know he's going to smash it, why do you keep bringing him? Well, nobody knows that before they give it to him. <laughs> but yeah, it's like... Well, there's also this weird part later on where he's, like, talking to Pulowski about it. And she's like, yeah, but, like, he, it, now it's... Ha- I've known you for a long time and it hasn't happened yet. So if it's happening every six years, is that so bad? Is that, like, a, a reason that you're unlovable? Is that like, every six years you get really mad? <laughs> <laughs> Well, I think he's not, like, he gets really mad. I think he's, like, a pressure cooker. Yeah. Like, things keep piling up, and he gets really mad. Like, when there's all these things are going on with the golden, and he's he's there's a part where he's complaining about the amount of work it takes to fix these ships, and they come in, and they just want everything done really quickly, and blah, blah, blah. And then, like, as things go on, like, what's happening with the goldens and Allegra and Rackla... He, he gets sort of, 
his rage level, he's, he's like a Gen X. He just gets to that rage level and he finally just pops off. And but there's we, no Twitter to go crazy on, so we, he has We to. know what his specific trigger is. We know what his specific trigger is, though, which is like being the, the being reminded of his limitations. Like, once he leaves the procreation group and he, like, settles into his life in the star pit, he's fine for most of it. It's only until Androcles is like, you're trapping me, that he he goes off. But it's interesting that that last time, when he's going to destroy the little Ecolugarium, it's not that he feels trapped. It's the idea that he's making someone else feel the way he feels that makes him lose it. But that's what's like frustrating about him is because he's like, I'm trapped in this small world because society won't let me. I can't travel farther and I can't move up the ladder and I can't do it. And then he doesn't do anything to like make his life better. Yeah. In fact, he does things that are like self-sabotaging to make things worse. And then I thought it was interesting because like when Sandy was going off and he was going to commit suicide using that giant robot arm, which the, seems like something from Total Recall. It's a it's a Waldo, they call it. But it's a there's a master glove, which is like this mechanical glove that's uh lubricated with powdered graphite. So anytime somebody wears it, their hand gets all black. And you put the glove on, and it dupli- the movements of the glove are duplicated in this giant robot slave arm high above that they use to like move and fix the ships. And he's basically going to squeeze his own head off. Yes, with by squeezing own- his head with the glove. Yeah. But then Vime talks him out of that and talks him down. Yeah. And gives him like some really sage advice about how to be like... How to like deal with the fact that you're going to have a small life and how to be happy with like what you have and how to move on from like this heartache that he's feeling over his like loss of Joey from the procreation group. But Sandy kind of has the opposite problem of Vime, where it's like I think the point of the Polisky scene at the end where she offers she confesses her love to him and asks him to marry her is that like. That's supposed to be, like, you're supposed to have this thing where it's like, if you can't have the entirety of the universe and you're supposed to take solace in these small connections and to build your kind of own world, your ecolegarium out of, like, your family and your friends and your smaller desires and goals. And the problem with people like Vime and Ratlet and the Golden is that they're, they're not content with that and they need more and more and more. And then Sandy has the opposite problem where Sandy's perfectly content to go after those small goals and to build that small world, and he still can't have it. Yeah, yeah. But I feel like it's kind of like the just the story is no one is happy no matter what you <laughs> what you want. Yeah, and I think that speaks to the sort of the like the climate of the time, and then also what Delaney was dealing with as a young writer who was writing in the 1960s in a genre where he wasn't totally accepted. So I think that really shows. Sure. But, I mean, I thought it was interesting, like, because the point, it's like a science fiction story, and then it's told with this sort of societal point of view, which makes it sort of more complex than just like an action, you know, like a adventure story. Because, I mean, it's like, 
like on the surface, you know, it's a story about a scrappy young mechanic and this, and this sort of st- stolen spaceship yeah, and this kind of the sort of like intellectual asset like it's a, heist that's going on. I mean, he they steal like her credentials, Allegra's cr- credentials, and then there's the and then he goes off. Is Ratcliffe a golden? No. So his he, whole thing is that he hates the golden. So he leaves on that ship, knowing yeah, that he's going to die. Well, yeah, because he might as well get rich or die trying. <laughs> it's kind of like like a Star Wars story, almost. Yeah, or it's like a like a Bobby Ann Mason story in space. Uh, yeah, no, I like that. It's like it's mostly just about like people with shitty jobs being unhappy. They just happen to be in space, and it's really deflating of this whole sort of like sci-fi fantasy of like space travel and the final frontier it's like well no actually it sucks and everyone's gonna be mad all the time like they are here they're just gonna be in space and you're still gonna walk down the block to the shitty bar except the bar is gonna be called gurgs (laughs) which is the name of the bar in this story i think it's kind of interesting that it's it's almost like it's not it's not like a Philip K. Dick story, but it's like the way that Philip K. Dick writes. There are where... Philip K. Dick stories happening in the background of this, though. Because one of the things we didn't talk about is a couple of times they mentioned that there's something out in space that's not dead and not alive, and it's the size of a planet. And, like, it never... It, there's no resolution to that. It's just a thing that we know exists. And it's like, that feels like... And there's an illustration of it, I think, in this story. That's just like a big planet with an eye on it. And that is like a Philip K. Dick thing. It's like, oh, there's a giant eye in space, and it's like, it's some, it's exists in a state of being that we don't understand, that because we only understand things in terms of dead and alive, and this is something else. But I think it's kind of interesting because it takes like culturally relevant themes that are going on, and instead of just saying, okay, this is a science fiction story, and I'm going to put some societal aspects in it. It really, like, he's trying to, like, sort of tackle, like, what's going on culturally in this story. He's talking a lot about, like, the feeling of being disenfranchised, of being discriminated, this sense of alienation that people are starting to feel in society. Like, society's going through this sort of turmoil in the 60s, and it's reflected in the work that he's doing. So I think that's interesting because he's taking this sort of traditional construct of like a science fiction story that previously was just a story and he's bringing in more thought-provoking elements which kind of makes it gives it an additional depth sure i mean you see that a lot now in science fiction there's lots of um talk about like gender roles and society and things like that and i think he's really trying to make people think about more than like spaceships and space guns and different things yeah 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 what do you think about the slots i don't know how i feel about that i don't know because it kind of really i don't know if it's because the story is so short or if he put that in there as an element that he would develop later on i haven't read any of his other work so i don't know if the slots make a reappearance i don't think they do but it's kind of weird but it's it's also like in my mind it kind of makes me think about like this whole like uproar and a sort of criticism now about zoos that keep like higher primates. It's like these are evolved creatures that have 
you know, like their own society and they're keeping them in essence in a cage. Yeah. It's like another example of like someone is being sort of marginalized. Like, like, you know, Vime's being marginalized and he's marginalizing people and then the kids are marginalizing these slots. I mean, everybody's getting like shafted and getting like restricted and and not having their freedom yeah but it's like also the description of them is really weird i think a lot of the things were weird he says they're small and deceptively organic because in an organic environment they appear to breathe and eat they had four sexes two of which carried the young they had clusters of retractable sense organs that first appeared to be eyes but were sensitive to 12 distinct senses Stimulation for three of which didn't even exist in our continuum. And they traveled around on four suction cups when using kinetic motion for ordinary traversal of space. Were small and looked furry. The only way to make them jump universes was to scare the life out of them. At which point they just disappeared. So, like, are they sentient? Or are they just happen to be the only beings that can travel between universes? Like, maybe that's the limitation. Like, you have to... You can't feel... You have to be psychotic to travel through space, and you have to be non-sentient to travel through the multiverse. But I also think if you flip that, he's saying you have to be brave Mm. to make changes. You have to be, like, courageous and willing to do something to allow something new to happen. But they jump universes because of when they get scared. Like, I feel like with anything, it's an indictment of that sort of thing. But I think... the. Being scared is also being willing to take a risk. These are these creatures are desperate. They get startled. They only have one defense mechanism, and that is to transfer through time. I think the thing at the end, because Vime has this, like, he laughs at this, and he has this sort of moment of peace as he's walking away. I think the revelation for Vime is that, is in that piece of information, where it's like, the only way to get them to jump universes is to scare them. And then giving him the realization that the reason that the people are constantly pushing out for more and more space and feeling trapped in the world that they live in is because they're scared. Like, he he comes to realize that he feels the way he does because he's afraid. But where are they getting these creatures to put in their egalariums? I think they just show up. I think they're just, like they just yeast? happen to be there. Yeah, I guess. Or like, it's like they, they landed on this planet and these things just happen to be hanging out there. And they hadn't gotten scared enough to leave yet. So they got stuck in the ecoligarium, and then when Vime destroys it, they get scared enough to leave. Here's what I what I had a problem with with Delaney is he's considered a new wave writer. Yes, but he is not, in my mind, weird enough to be a really good new wave writer. Okay. Like if he's not like if you think of like. Who's the, like, most well-known new wave writer? Roger Zelanzi. Uh Yeah, sure. J.G. Ballard, Michael Moorcock. It's definitely not as weird as those. Like, I just recently read a J.G. Ballard story called The Enormous Space that's about a man who gets divorced and decides he's never going to leave his house. And then uh, the he, like, his isolation begins to reveal to himself that... The dimensions of our world are larger than we thought they were, and his house begins to expand in his mind. Uh, and, like, this is not nearly as weird as that. But I think that ethos is there. There's the idea of, like, all the stuff with your mind and things breaking your mind and these, these 
the bleakness, like that's all feels very new wave to me. Yeah, I don't know. I feel like it's not in my mind sort of, I don't know, it's like not edgy or avant-garde enough. I mean, I feel like it feels more like a traditional science fiction story that has modern elements woven into it. It doesn't feel, I mean, I, I understand he's like groundbreaking in, you know, and his contribution is important, but I feel like he's not, maybe he's just on the cusp. Like maybe he's like still traditional science fiction and he's on the cusp of new wave. But like, I mean, if you think of like Lord of Light, it's kind of like almost like two separate alien sort of types of writing. But I, 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 I don't know. I, I thought that this was pre- pretty new wave. I mean, there's also, like, a lot of the new wave stuff is moves away from, like, hard science fiction. And this is definitely is not hard science fiction. Well, I have a note here that says, postmodern with an edge to soft science mm-hmm. is my description of, like, Delaney's work. And I feel like, I mean, some of the stuff that he does, I feel like it is progressive like he's talking about like sexual orientation he's talking about gender roles he's talking about like this sort of expansion of the traditional family um nude you know there's kind of like this expansion of what a traditional family is and i think he's talking a lot about like the societal limits of that certain people are constricted by you know, it's like Allegra and her issues and all of the characters are limited by like some kind of social construct that is like applied to them. Mm-hmm. But I had a question for you. Sure. I had a couple questions that were follow-ups to the story. Why do you think so much importance is placed into slotting sci-fi authors into genre subgroups? Well, uh, I mean, I think it's the same reason for, for any sort of genre thing. It's for like... Partially, it's for ease of, like, categorization and organization and recommendation. I think part of it is the nerds just like to put things in the list. I think the thing with New Wave, though, is it's not really a genre. It's, like, a genuine literary movement that is, like, centered on a specific time and has a specific, like, function in moving science fiction as a literary genre forward. I mean, New Wave literally takes its name from the magazine that Bollard edited. Like, I think whether or not stylistically you think Delaney fits into the new wave, he is functionally a new wave writer. Yeah, that makes sense. I also wanted to ask you about the Egalariums, because when I was doing research about this, there were a lot of sort of different impressions of what those devices symbolized i mean there was talk of them being like microchasms for being like a bird's eye comment on society or reflection on like a closed system what do you think delaney actually meant those egalariums to represent i mean i think they're they're just like nested metaphors for the world like because that's the big revelation of this story is that like you know, the story starts and it's just like, ah, eh, people can be in space. And then it slowly parcels out the information that people can only be in so much space, revealing that, like, even in this, like, whiz-bang future spaceship world, we're still trapped by some sort of barrier. And then the big twist at the end is that even the people who can transcend that barrier are also trapped by a barrier. And so it's just like, 
the world is just these nested barriers all the way down to the smallest version being that little self-contained microscopic eco-ligarium that Androcles gives to Vime at the end of the story. I don't know if it was like our extended talk about metafiction. And I think I was thinking about this when you had mentioned like Borges and the maze. Mm-hmm. And then I was thinking about like John Barth's funhouse. Like is the ecolarium that? Yeah. I mean, I guess in that they're both the world. They're both these conceptions of the world as a containing artificial space, but they're kind of opposite functions. Like, I didn't think about this at the time, but you can almost make an argument that, oh, what's the word I'm looking for? Not theist. You could almost make an argument that Lost in the Funhouse is a story about the existence of the soul, right? Because the Funhouse is an open system. You come into the Funhouse and you leave the Funhouse. You still exist once you're out of the Funhouse. And if the Funhouse is a metaphor for world and life, life being a state you enter into eventually die, then Lost in the Funhouse is kind of a story about the existence of the afterlife. Whereas this feels like a very atheistic story. If the Ecolegarium is a metaphor for the world and the Ecolegarium is closed and it is only upon being destroyed that it is opened, then it's like, that's it. That's all there is to the world. You live and you die and you live for in the Ecolegarium and you die in the Ecolegarium. And your worm children eat your body. I I mean, that's a way of looking at it. But now that I'm thinking about it, maybe when... If that was like... If the Ecolarium is a society, mm-hmm. when Vine smashes that and he frees those sloths, he's like liberating them. Yeah, sure. There's that too, yeah. But I thought it was interesting because like Delaney sort of lets you pick what what represses you... And what the golden, sim, you know, can be a symbol for. Because, I mean, they could be like the upper class, the educated advantage, people with racial preferences, culturally important people, gender. I mean, you could, like, whatever, you know, a privileged adult or, like, a special child, whatever you want those goldens to represent, for you, you can sort of customize it to be the symbol that you want it to be. And I think that's kind of interesting. That's... How I think, like, a lot of people end up relating, like, especially to Delaney's work. Because his themes sort of fit about how a lot of people feel. Mm-hmm. And I think that's interesting. I just want to touch on the Funhouse thing one more time. I think the, 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 what's highlighted between those... The differences between those two metaphors, I think, highlights the differences between the perspective of those two stories. Where they're both conceptions of the world as a can artificial containing space... But you, the equilibrium is constructed around you, its society, and the universe, like these outside forces trapping you. You voluntarily walk into the funhouse. It's internal and psychological, and it's about your the limits of your own perspective. So what you're saying is, in Delaney's work, you don't choose to walk into the funhouse. You're already there. You're born in the funhouse. You're born in... I mean, because it's the same thing, because he's kind of like, we're never getting out... We're never getting away from the star pit, because we can't go any further. Yeah. We're but, literally at the end of the world. But even in your conception of, like, the Vime liberating the sloths from the Ecolegarium, the idea is, like, you break out of the Ecolegarium, there's always a bigger one. Exactly. Like, you're always trapped. And just because we know that the sloths can travel between the universe doesn't mean that there's not something else... That we can't even understand that isn't limiting their 
ability to travel. But I think that's pretty clear because Vime says that when he's talking in the bar about his childhood on Earth. Oh, yeah. And it's kind of like, I was stuck on Earth and I went to school to be a space pilot, ended up being a space mechanic for whatever reason. I My goal was to get out of this small world, this mm-hmm. Earth, and go into space. And now I'm in space and I've gone as far as I can go. Yeah, yeah. But he never says, like, he's not a golden. But I think the only way that you can find out if you're a golden is to take a test. So I don't. Yeah. it never is clear if Mime has taken the test and found out that he can't go any further. He never but doesn't Allegra, mention having taken the test, so I, you assume he hasn't. But yeah, you're right. And then Allegra is... Is that his daughter or a, a girl that was born in the procreation group? Because I don't think he has he, any connection to Allegra. She meets her... At the start pit. Because he has this sort of desire to protect her and take care of her and to help her. I think that's just him. The same thing that he has with Ratlid is the same thing he has with Sandy and Androcles. It's just that he he wants to help people. He I don't think he meets her until she's like, or like you know, already in the situation that she's in. Yeah, because I think he sort of tells the story of what happened to her. Yeah. Well, yeah, that was like... So her whole story is that she was born... With his addiction to this psychedelic drug, she projects her mind. But the reason she didn't get treatment when she was born was because the government wanted to use her as a psychic psychiatrist to help these people that were... I think it was like an expedition of Golans who had lost... Who had been, like, destroyed by some unknown psychic pressure. Which I guess, are, are we supposed to assume that the people she was... The reason she didn't get treatment was because she needed to help the people who were messed up by working with the sloths. I don't know, but the the government doesn't help her. No, they just kind of turn leave her they on leave her, her own after they're done with her. Yeah, because, I mean, she's pretty much her... The way that she gets the medicine that she needs to keep herself alive and sane is she has to buy it on the black market. Yeah. I mean, the government's kind of a non-entity in this story. It exists in so much as it... We know about it from Allegra's backstory. We know that there's some kind of regulatory body where you have to go take the test to be golden and they give you the belt. But otherwise, it doesn't really show up at all. And there's references to wars being fought. The the Vimes procreation group dies in the war. But those are pretty detached. He almost treats the wars like weather. They just happen sometimes. People go to war for something and most people who are directly affected by it don't ever really understand the specifics of why and how it's happening. Right. Which is pretty prescient and pretty depressing. Like almost all of this story. This is a very sad story. Yeah. Which makes me... that I mean, my final question about this, the star pit is, what do you think his lasting legacy is? Delaney? Yeah. I mean, I think he's... Like a lot of these... New wave writers. He his part of his legacy is that he pushed sci-fi into this more contemplative, uh, more socially aware space that it's sort of lived in since then. And like obviously there are exceptions, and everything kind of jiggles back and forth between how aware and uh, contemplative it is at any given time. But also I think like he's a an example to. You know, lots of different writers who come from, you know, various marginalized and minority backgrounds that they can succeed and can forge a legacy in this space, like as a writer in general and as a sci-fi writer specifically. 
Excuse me. Interesting. I mean, I think this is some of the earliest, like, and most direct, like, examples of, like, a queer character in science fiction. And Sandy is a man who is in love with another man. Like, and that's just, that's just part of the story. And it's not really even, like, uh, commented on in the text. The thing that's more surprising than anything to Vine when he learns about Joey is that Joey was golden. And that Sandy was married to and in love with a golden. Yeah. Interesting. Do you have anything else to say about the story or about Delaney or? Uh, not at the moment, no. Not that I can think of. I mean, what did you think about? Did you like it? I liked it, and I thought it was more like a traditional science fiction adventure story than it was, um, you know, new and avant garde like some of the later new wave writers. I don't think I would call this an adventure story. It's mostly a story about a guy walking back and forth from the mechanic shop where he works. I think space mechanic, wayward, you know, way station to the stars. I think that's kind of like a like a traditional motifs in like early science fiction. Sure, but he doesn't get in like a dogfight. Yeah, but I mean like spaceships and things like that. I think it's the the sort of traditional theme of what goes on in a science fiction story which I think is interesting I think it's kind of I mean it's relevant in the social themes that it addresses but it's kind of dated in the sort of technology stylings that are used uh yeah I guess there's nothing too bad I mean there nobody has a computer but like yeah it's not like big bossy or anything like that I mean it's not that awful I mean, I think he, he he does well by not going too much into specifics. It's like, they're spaceships, they got something called a Keeler Drive, we don't really know how those work. Um, yeah, I think it's like, I, I don't think it's it feels too, I mean, you can read this and you definitely know, can from more from, I think, the style and like the attitudes of the characters, you can get a feel for when it was published. I don't, there was like nothing where I was like... But, you know, honestly, the most dated thing in this is the psychic stuff. We've talked about this before, and I've talked about it, like, on Twitter and with people in public, is this weird assumption that I don't really know where it comes from that's in a lot of old science fiction that there just will be psychics in the future. Like, it's just like, yep, eventually we'll be psychic. And I don't know why so many sci-fi writers thought that, but a lot of them clearly did, and they're all over a lot of science fiction. Well, I mean, it's not, like telepathy but i think they're like this sort of like connection that people make like this sort of digital connection can almost be seen as like yeah i guess but i'm just saying you read like the demolished man and it's just like yep there's gonna be psychics and that that happens in a lot of philip k dick stuff too and you're just like where were you guys getting this from well i think it was this sort of concept of tying instead of like the golden age of science fiction where they're taking like technology and they're taking the hard science and they're trying to like as a it into like modern society i think they're taking the sort of softer sciences psychology and you know like sociology and they're using that as a basis to develop science fiction and i think like a lot of like psychological the premise at the time deals with like thoughts and thought constructs. And I think that might be a stepping stone to get you to telepathy. Maybe. 
maybe. It's just a thing that I've, I've always been really aware of and I've always been pretty confused by. It's the same thing like in like 70s and 80s horror. They also had like a hard focus on like ESP and mind, yeah, you know. But it's like there are stories. I wish I could think of a specific example outside of this where it's like here's our big sci-fi concept that this story is about where we have to explore like the hows and whys and the implications of it. But also they're psychics and that's just taken as a given. Starship like, Troopers? Treated and almost... Yeah, exactly. Starship Troopers is a, is a good example. You're right. Where it's like... But it's almost treated in the same way it would be like, ah, people will just have ray guns. And so we can have a ray gun in a science fiction story. And we don't need to explain how and why there are ray guns. It's fucking ray guns. They're in science fiction. And for a while, psychics were treated the same way. And I've always wondered what the basis for that was. Were there like articles being published at the time where they're like... The human mind is ever developing, and soon we'll be able to communicate with our thoughts alone. What was it? They were all reading like Omni magazine. Yeah, I guess that's the <laughs> yes. I guess that's the explanation. Everyone was reading Omni magazine. But once you think about, once you read enough of these old science fiction stories, and you're like, everybody thought there was going to be psychics, and we're thinking about psychics a lot. It makes this is a weird take. It makes the rise of Scientology make more sense. It certainly that does. people would be more susceptible to those ideas at the time because that was more it like it feels so weird now to look back at like Dianetics and now Ron Hubbard, but he was much more tied in, I think, to the cultural and intellectual zeitgeist at the time than it seems like he was reading it now. But like, could psychic powers just sort of be like a symbolic manifestation of like brainwashing? I have no idea. I mean, they serve all sorts of different symbolic purposes. I'm just saying it in, I don't know. But it's still, I'm in my it point still about goes psychics. on to today. Because, like, something like David Brin, like, where he has his, like, mind melds with, like, the alien dolphins and stuff like that. Like, yeah, but that stuff gets explained now. Now the psychic shows up in a science fiction story and it's like, oh, yeah, like, there'll at least be, like, an offhand reference to, like, the sorry engineering program of the 2022s. And it's like, okay, we made psychics. That's the explanation for why there's psychics in the story. And then they can serve whatever metaphorical or plot mechanical pro- function that they serve. But older stories just put them right in there with no explanation and you're sort of supposed to take it as a given. Well, George R. R. Martin does that in Night Flyers. Yeah. He really doesn't give any explanation except it's like we can go we, we have the technology to get to space and we also have Oh it psychics. happens and stuff now, like uh the movie Looper just has psychics in it and it's like, man, psychics. The time travel's the important part, but there there are psychics here. But I think it's interesting because like I understand, like, you say, okay, this guy has a ray gun, and we all know ray guns are, and even though the technology is here, we understand how that works. Mm-hmm. There are, like, modern inventions that are similar to ray guns. Like, yeah. we have, like, heat sensor guns, we have lasers, we have all this stuff. But in modern society, we have no variation of, like, the powerful psychic that rules society. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's the dead zone all over again. Yeah, but the Dead Zone's, like, supernatural. <laughs> That's, like, a horror thing. It's a different thing. Well, maybe they... Yeah. That would be an interesting, like, you know, thesis that someone could I definitely think write. that's a thing. Because there's lots of psychics in Stephen King stuff. And I wonder if that's influenced by all these old science fiction stories having all these psychics in them. I think so. I really do. Because it's, like, The Shining, Firestarter, The Dead Zone. But, I mean, it's, like, it's the equivalent of, like, cyberpunk and the evil computer. Sure. 
But I know how we can get an evil computer. <laughs> I don't know how we're going to get psychics. Interesting. Well, I mean, it was, the thing with the story is, I mean, it's an interesting, well-written, fun-to-read story, but it also is thought-provoking and provocative, which I think is a, makes it a good story, makes it stay relevant, even though it's, you know, an older story. This is a, an, an example of this, like, thing that I wish you saw more in science fiction, which is, like, dealing with, like... In-universe explanations for why the universe has seemed so empty to us up until now. Whereas the idea in here is we physically can't travel this far until we have this revelation about the golden. And then you get stuff like um, Werner Vinge's A Fire Upon the Deep where it's like the universe is structured in such a way that like faster than light travel and advanced computers only work in certain parts of it. And I wonder if this story with its like hard physical limits on how far people can travel sectioning the universe off into these kind of bands of accessibility was an influence on that story. That yeah, that would make sense. I was thinking I wanted to bring this up later when you would ask me like what have you read? And I wanted to talk a little bit about Well, the... hold on. What have you read? Well, interestingly enough, it's related to what we're talking about right now and I was I had read this book called Recursion. I think I talked about this off the podcast by Blake Crouch. And he is a writer. His most well-known series to date, he's an active writer, is the Wayward Pine series that they made the television show about. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then he wrote this book, Dark Matter, which is like his number one bestseller. And it's like becoming a movie and it's getting sort of this like importance you know as being like a modern science fiction writer but he won the 2019 goodreads award for science fiction and the goodreads awards are fan nominated so they have like three cycles where they have like books that were written in 2019 in different categories and all the people who use the app vote and then there's like a semi-finals and a finals and you keep voting until there's only one left. It's sort of like a March Madness, but for books. And he won, Recursion won, the 2019 science fiction category. Okay. And I think it's interesting because it's sort of like what you were talking about, about like these psychics. The story is about a man and a, a two scientists that create this technology, which is supposed to be a cure for Alzheimer's, that allows people to go back into their past and relive their past okay and then it's sort of like a techno thriller about like this technology is being misused and these two a cop and the scientists keep going back to different time periods to try to fix things and try to stop this technology from being released is it like actual time travel or like mental time travel it's actual time travel but you can only travel to your memories Okay, but do you, like, inhabit your... Yes. Okay, you, like, inhabit your old body or your young body. Yeah, you go back in time and you live and relive your past physically. And then, you know, so there's multiple versions of yourself in different timelines and stuff like that. And the timelines affect each other and it's kind of, like, very complicated. Like a, like a every other Blake Crouch story where, you know, there's so many 
wrinkles going on that you, you know it's high but now there's a wrinkle in, in time there you go maybe you can write that screenplay but i think it was interesting because like he's taking this sort of concept that like a lot of people especially aging people and especially certain generations that are aging and concerned about their memory retention he's capitalizing on that fear Instead of like having this technology fear where people are afraid of like robots, now people are afraid of losing their minds and losing their memories. And so he writes this techno thriller that is pretty much about um, what would happen if you went back in time and you could change things and then you change things and catastrophic things happen, which is like a common theme in science fiction. Yeah, yeah, there's a lot. That, that's the that's kind of the the time travel story, right? Like that's like the the first thing you think to do with time travel is like. You know, you do a Sound of Thunder. Yeah, and I think it has, like, he always has these sort of heroic people that are doctors or police officers or detectives or, you know, um, teachers with hearts of gold. And they end up getting put in these sort of tenuous positions where they have to save society from whatever, like, techno-fear is, like, the hot thing. But I thought it was interesting because that's like what people selected as what they think was the best science fiction novel of the year was the sort of weird kind of like memory time travel story. So That's interesting. Yeah, no, I've never read anything by him. I'm aware of Wayward Pines, but that's about my extent of my interaction with his work. But I feel like what you were just saying... When you were describing the way that his stories work, I think is a pretty good argument for why Delaney is a new wave writer. Because it's like he wrote a story and instead of being about a scientist or an adventurer or a teacher with a heart of gold saving the world in space, it's about an alcoholic mechanic struggling with an existential crisis in space. That's one of one of the things that I kind of... I, t- I was... A- very excited when I did my research about new wave writers was that a lot of the new wave science fiction writers claimed that William S. Burroughs was an influence on their work. Sure. And I thought that was interesting because that really brings in that sort of gritty, like, realism into science fiction, which I thought was interesting. Yeah, yeah. I think that makes sense to me. I mean, William S. Burroughs also wrote some straight-up science fiction. Yeah. As well. But I think it was interesting about Recursion is that it's like, you can see, like we talked about this one when I was reading the Hugo Award list, you can see sort of generationally what science fiction writers valued and what they thought were important themes. And like now, a lot of science fiction writers are not writing about like the fear of like evil technology that's going to destroy us, like the cyberpunks we're talking about. But now they're talking about things like um, being relevant in a digital world or having a way to save your memory, save your brain. There's lots of science fiction about like mapping your brain or downloading your brain or like taking your consciousness and putting it in an artificial construct. And I think that's sort of interesting because it's really telling like what societal issues people are dealing with. Yes, I agree. Well, you mentioned the Hugos, which reminded me of a thing I wanted to talk about, which is that the Starpit is a Hugo-nominated novella. 
was nominated in the first ever like category for novellas at the Hugo Awards. And I thought it was interesting. It's 1968. It's awards because you know the story's from 1967. Uh, it's a super stacked category. So who was nominated? So we have Robert Silverberg, another new wave writer, another hugely influential science fiction writer, for Hawksbill Station, which is a novella that he would eventually expand into a novel. Uh, we have Samuel Delaney for The Star Pit. We have Roger Zelazny for Damnation Alley, which is a hugely influential post-apocalyptic story. Almost every, pretty much every post-apocalyptic story, especially ones that, you know, everyone that came after it. It's pretty much influenced by it. You know, uh, The Cursed Earth is like one of the most famous Judge Dredd stories, and the writer of that has specifically talked about how it was influenced by Damnation Alley. Uh, and then the winners are a tie between Phillips Jose Farmer's Riders of the Purple Wage, which is his uh, novella from the legendary sci fi anthology Dangerous Visions, edited by Harlan Ellison. And then the other winner is Where Search by Anne McCaffrey. Which would eventually be expanded into the novel Dragonflight, which is the first book in the Dragon Riders of Pern series. That's interesting because it was like a, a split between hard science fiction and fantasy. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, they're all they're all sci-fi to a certain like Dragon Riders of Pern kind of is a science fiction story that uses the trappings of fantasy. But yeah, basically. But yeah, no, I just I thought it was interesting how. How sort of packed that was that like Star Pit lost to like two huge stories and then also Damnation Alley and Hawksbill Station were in there. Weren't you just talking about Hawksbill Station? Maybe and making a movie or miniseries? No, I was talking about the Hawkline Monster. Oh, the Hawkline Monster, which is a book that I just started reading. Totally a wanna, mom thing to do. If you want to talk about the thing that I've been reading, is the Hawkline Monster by Richard Browdigan? It's the guy who wrote. Uh, Trout fishing in America. Okay. The Hawkeye Monster is like a... I've always heard it described as a parody of gothic fiction and westerns. I'm not entirely sure if it's a parody. It's certainly an examination of both of those (laughs) things. But I think we should do it for the podcast at some point. It's pretty short. Okay. And I think we should do it. It's, It's very weird. It's about these two... Greer and Cameron are two sort of like taciturn hitmen in the Old West who are hired to come to the Hawkline Mansion and kill a monster that's living in the ice caverns under the house. Uh, And then everything is very strange and nothing is as it seems. And there's a lot about, like, mind and identity and, like, persona and how, like, inhabiting personas affects your identity and it uses the trappings of westerns and gothic fiction to kind of explore this this narrative is it new or no it's like from the 70s oh okay but they just recently they were they were trying to develop it into a movie for a while and then it was just recently announced that it's definitely moving ahead and Yorgos Lathamos uh director of the favorite and the lobster and killing of a sacred deer and dog tooth is going to be directing it which, when I was reading it, made a lot of sense because it is very Lathamosian. <laughs> the characters have some very strange dialogue and attitudes, and there's like a weird sort of... A, a, there's a little bit of absurdist sort of a twinge to it that feels a lot like a lot of his work. So I think it'll, it'll be pretty good. 
uh, and I'm pretty interested in that adaptation. That sounds interesting. Yeah, I would be up for doing that. So what do we got up next? Uh, so we're, we we did our novella for February? This, this is February. I know what month that is. Uh, and uh, we're going to move on to comics, and we're going to do Destroyer. Uh, Victor Laval's Destroyer, which has art by a, a person that I know. Give me a second to look it up. So this is his take on... It's almost, is it a reimagining or just an inspired by? I think it's a sequel. A sequel? Yeah, I think it's kind of a sequel to Frankenstein. Uh, yeah, so written by Victor Laval, art by Dietrich Smith, colors by Joanna LaFuente, and lettered by Jim Campbell. Yeah, it's his Frankenstein comic. It's set in the modern day. It's kind of a sci-fi action-adventure thing uh, with some interesting stuff going on, and we're going to read that and talk about it. And he won a Stoker Award for that, for Best Graphic Novel. I think it, the compilation won. There's only six issues. Yeah, it's a, it's a miniseries, I it's guess. It's a miniseries. Um, so that should be fun. Who else has won a Stoker Award for... Oh, that award's only been around since 2011. Yeah. Alan Moore for ne- Neon Nomicon. Rocky Wood and Lisa Morton for Witch Hunts, A Graphic History of the Burning Times. Caitlin R. Kiernan for Alabaster Wolves. I'm not going to read this whole thing. That's some interesting choices. Did he win? He's nominated, I think. I don't think they've done the awards yet. Well, spoiler- Or we only have up till 2017 listed on Wikipedia. Spoiler alert on Twitter. He showed his award that he had won for Destroyer. Uh, maybe they're just not uh, up to date on Wikipedia. We'll do more research. Uh, yeah. Stoker Awards are weird. I wanted to, speaking of, like, speaking of Bram Stoker, I wanted to talk a little bit about the, I mean, they just dropped it on Netflix, the BBC um, adaptation that they did of Dracula. Yeah. Which, I, it's getting a lot of conversation going. I've heard basically an equal amount of people saying it's very good and it's very bad. But my question to you is, do we really want to see a loyal adaptation of the Dracula novel? No. You might... (laughs) Well, actually, that's not true. It had... Had technological difficulties not happened, you would all know my feelings on Bram Stoker, which is, I think, he wasn't a very good writer. He's very influential, and he had some interesting ideas, but he maybe, you know, was more of an ideas guy than anything. Yeah, it's, it's... This is like... This Dracula thing is weird that it's happening now because it feels like it should have happened, like, I don't know, 12 years ago? When did Dracul come out? This is like the follow-up to Jekyll, basically, right? By the people working on it and the style that it's in. It's made by the Sherlock team. Yeah, who are also the Jekyll team. Like, this is the third in their trilogy of these guys do a, like, Victorian novel, I guess? Yeah, he, uh, to get back to Victor Laval, he did win the 2019 Stoker Award, which was announced in May of 2019. Oh, well, Wikipedia, somebody needs to update the Wikipedia article for... Get on that, you weirdos from the Stoker Award. Yeah, he wins the Superior Achievement in a Graphic Novel Award. Well, so did you watch any of this Dracula yet? No, I haven't, but I just kind of like... I know we talk a lot about the character of Dracula and how more important the character is than Bram Stoker 
And I was just curious about it. I haven't watched it. I want to watch it. But I was kind of thinking a lot about there are a lot of people who have not read the original novel. Sure. The movie is better. And there's lots of weird stuff that's in the novel. There's lots of um, problematic things. I there's think also a lot of weird stuff in that there's like... Uh, the best thing about Dracula, the novel, is Jonathan Harker, who's one of my favorite literary protagonists of all time. Because I don't know if it's intentional or not, but he is such a dope. Like, he is like a character that, like, Ed Helms or Chris Parnell would play now. There's this whole part in the beginning where he eats, like, paprika chicken and he notes that he has to get the recipe for it. And he can't tell that Dracula is a weirdo, even though Dracula is obviously a weirdo. Yeah, but I mean, I don't know if it was like, it had to be the first season, in quotes, of Dried Up Brain, where we talked about the Icelandic, the... Oh, the powers of darkness? Yeah, a couple years ago when they found this sort of alternative version of Dracula, this Icelandic version, and we talked a lot about the differences between that powers of darkness and the actual novel... And then this sort of perception of how people see the characters from Dracula. Yeah. I don't think that this BBC Netflix one is like a faithful adaptation. I think it's like more about Dracula the character and like is like following him less than it is like adapting the plot of the novel, which is mostly not about Dracula the character. I think what I'm, I'm curious to see what it looks like and not necessarily care about their adaptation because apparently it's supposed to be filmed in the same castle that they filmed Nosferatu in the 1920s in. Interesting. So I'll be curious to see what it actually looks like. But I guess we'll be talking a lot about Frankenstein the next episode yeah so brush up on your frankenstein that's another novel that i think a lot of people haven't actually read yeah but that one's actually good <laughs> yeah so we'll talk about frankenstein and we'll talk about victor laval we'll talk about destroyer we'll talk about comic books we'll talk about a lot of stuff uh, i think we're done here are yeah, we not i think so so uh i got it blast off in my spaceship i'm going to the star pit well yeah don't go too far though yeah, I'm not a golden, so I can only go a certain amount. Uh, spoiler alert, stay tuned. Bye, everyone. Bye.